Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Andrew Fisher, who's head of asset allocation for Sun Super. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Now, before we started to dig in into the questions, um, there's one thing I need to clear up with you. I've heard that you are an ultra marathon runner. Is that true? I am an ultra marathon runner. That was um, an unexpected question. So yes, I have uh, I have run some extremely long distances at times um, for. I'm not sure what reason. <laughs> What's the longest distance that you've run? Uh, so the longest one I did was there's a um, there's a race, the um, Ultra Trail Australia, I think, in the Blue Mountains, which was 100 kilometres. Um, most recently I did the, which was just in February, just before everything got locked down, actually, the Overland Track um, race, which is in Tasmania. Uh, that one's 80 kilometres, but... Um, that was probably a little bit harder trying to train for a race like that with bushfires over Christmas. Um, it was a pretty tough, tough environment. I was pretty broken at the end of that one. Yeah, I can imagine. How did you get started with this? Um, I think like many things in life, um, just started. I started running and then just kept going further and further and further. Um, and still haven't, I don't think I've yet reached my limit, but I'm getting pretty close looking at my ankles at the moment. But, um, <laughs> see how we go. Yeah, can't push it too far. So can you tell me a little bit how you got started in the investment industry? I think you initially worked with risk modeling software. Is that right? Um, yeah. So um, if you go right back, so I started, um, well, technically my first job was at Commonwealth Bank, which was straight out of university. Um, I did that for about a year and a half. And then my now wife, but um, girlfriend at the time, we traveled around Australia for a year. So I had a lot of odd jobs over the course of that year and then uh, ended up in Perth working at a software company sort of at the end of that she was doing. My wife was doing um, an internship with an artist in WA. And so I found a job there, which was at a uh, software company um, and so yeah, risk modeling software trading software treasury essentially um and so then i worked there for a few years and then um, we had a couple of children whilst we were over there and then uh sort of she wanted to move home um or we both wanted to move back in fairness uh, so we came back to sydney that was how i got into it i mean in general i think i studied um, studied finance at university so i think it was probably always the direction i would have ended up heading but yeah that's that's kind of the that's the background story so you're married to an artist is that right uh, ceramic artist, yes, correct. Ah, okay. um, 
she's just started started again. Our kids are sort of halfway through high school, so she didn't she didn't do a lot of um, didn't do a lot of her work for a while there. But uh, I think she's setting up to do an exhibition in the next sort of six to twelve months. So very good. Um, a lot of excitement around the house with that going on. At the <laughs> All right, excellent. So. With your start in, in, in the industry, uh, focusing on that software piece, do you think the, the risk modeling gives you a bit of a different perspective on how other people came into the industry? Mm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think there's a few, uh, there's, a, there's sort of a few things that differentiate, but I don't think one of the areas that, many, that will differentiate many people in the industry is technical capability. Um, I think we all get very similar training and if you think about it in the context of like pure maths versus applied maths, I think everybody's quite good at the pure maths side of things. I mean, you don't make it in the industry if you're not. Um, I think what differentiates though is how different people apply that knowledge to the problem in front of them. But there's a lot of, uh, I guess there's a lot of emotional aspects to the job that we do. Um, there's a lot of emotional aspects that drive markets. And so how you navigate that, whether you seek to exclude it from your decision-making or you seek to try and use it in your decision-making, think that's probably the the differentiating thing and then in terms of experience then it's as much life experience as it is work experience that would give people different perspectives is what i um i observe and that and also sort of the, the personality that you have so if i think about my personality and where that worked well for me um i have the the sort of personality or the um, the nature of wanting to know how things work and why things work rather than how to make them work, if that makes sense. So working in a role like that in one of my first roles was really, I think it was quite instructive because you got to pull everything down to real sort of base levels. Um, if, when you're writing software for uh, these sorts of things, you need to really go right down to the very base level and build up your knowledge, build up your knowledge from really first principles. So having that as a grounding, I think was quite useful for me. So have you figured out how the markets work? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, I think the, the, the only thing I'd say is that on a day-to-day basis, markets are much more driven by emotion than any, any fundamentals um, is my observation. So you're currently head of asset allocation um, at SunSuper. So what does that role cover? Is that mainly the strategic asset allocation or is it more the dynamic sort of overlay? Uh, look, a bit of both. Um, we, do, we have a strategic asset allocation team within my team a dynamic asset allocation team but then i think the other the other area that's quite important is the implementation side of things as well so we when it comes to asset allocation for us it's really um, yeah, strategic dynamic and then uh, we call it exposure management but really how you how you go from the strategy to the um, end outcome and making sure on a day-to-day basis um, day-to-day basis that we're actually getting the asset allocation that we want so have you made any recent changes in the middle of all this turmoil from the pandemic and the, the chaotic and uncertain sort of environment moving forward? Look, we haven't made huge changes. I think one area one area where we have made a change is around our, so from a strategic perspective, one area that we've made a change is in terms of how we're thinking about foreign currency in the portfolio. Um, so not so much how we're thinking about how much we have. So we've increased our foreign currency allocation probably in the last month or two. And the main the main reason for that was thinking through thinking through how you want defensive assets in the portfolio. Um, currency, foreign currency performed 
perhaps even better than our expectations in terms of its defensiveness through the crisis. And so one of the one of the con- one of the nagging concerns we'd had for a while was with the compression in interest rates around the world. Could the Australian could foreign currency for Australian investors still perform that defensive role? Um, but given given the recent experience that we've had, uh, I think we've that sort of reaffirmed our confidence in that allocation. And so, if you think about how you put defensive assets in your portfolio with interest rates being so low, uh, that's a really attractive proposition for us. So we did move to increase our foreign currency allocation. Uh, we didn't do that. And didn't do that. Um, and we, we were able to do that after the currency had recovered quite a bit as well. So on a lot of metrics, that looks like a really attractive thing for us to do. Um, and then beyond that, we haven't done an awful lot. I think if you look at some of the areas where there's been distress in the market, uh, buyers and sellers are a long way away from each other right now. So um, listed markets, it'll happen very quickly. Unlisted markets, there's not, there's not an awful lot of price discovery and things you might want to be interested in at the moment. Yeah, that distressed area, that seems to be uh, something where a lot of investors looking at at the moment. Um, but I also recently spoke with some investors that said, well, we're actually cynical about the um, extent of the opportunity there, because there's a lot of money looking perhaps for not that many deals. What, what is your view on that? Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're right. I think I would share that cynicism. I think that's why there's limited price discovery right now. There's a lot of people who re, who think that uh, there's a lot of people with a lot of money on the sidelines um, and it's been there for a while and they're all waiting for these opportunities to come up. And I think they might just, I think they might sit and wait for a while and then realize they're not there. Um, because, I mean, there's, there's very limited incentive or requirement for anyone who holds those assets to sell them at the prices people think they might be able to get them for. Um, once that price discovery does come back into the market, I think you'll find things have recovered. But who knows? But yeah, as it stands right now, I sort of share that cynicism. I'm not convinced we'll see a huge amount of transactions at distressed prices in any of the unlisted assets. Yeah, fair enough. Now, you've been with uh, Sun Super for quite a while, but had a, a brief stint at New Zealand Super um, as well. New Zealand Super is quite famous for its strategic tilting program, uh, which they seem to be doing quite well. Have you picked up any sort of elements for that that you can apply in your role as head of asset allocation? Uh, look, so I think when uh, when I left um, when I left Sun Super to join New Zealand Super, I would definitely say... It was so for me that was to some extent an aspirational piece. So you're right. I think what they do in that space is really, um, really industry leading. Uh, they're doing a really good job, and we yeah, we have tried to have tried to apply some of the learnings um, and the way they do things in the way we manage money as well. So um, we certainly don't do it on the same quantum and scale that they do, but some of those same principles do inform our asset allocation process as well. Now at SunSuper. Yeah. So do you think that the current environment requires a bit more of a, a hands-on approach in terms of the asset allocation, a, a bit more of a dynamic approach? I mean, you said you mainly made some changes in currency, but moving forward, do you think we need to move away from sort of too much of a strategic asset allocation? Yeah, look, I think um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a tricky, tricky question. I mean, it always feels like that, but then if you look back through um, the past 12 months and you look at which were the highest performing funds, they generally weren't particularly dynamic in their approach. They were incredibly passive in their approach, in fact. Um, now, those funds did well because they owned a lot of bonds, uh, I think, compared to some others who diversified into other alternatives. And some of that performance may come back, uh, I suspect. But even still, uh, it hasn't 
despite despite the continued and consistent narrative that um, active management is going to do better, it seems to keep missing out. So I'm not. I'm not hugely convinced that strategic asset allocation has stopped working. Um, and so I think we use a combination. We are cognizant that dynamic, I mean, asset allocation more generally is a fairly limited breadth opportunity set. And so we, we think about how much active risk and how much, um, how much confidence we have in asset allocation, how much breadth there is, how much active risk makes sense to take in that space. And then you compare that with, um, a much broader opportunity set like listed shares um, and we size things accordingly. So yes, we do all of those things. I think it's worthwhile to remember that in a lot of cases and for a lot of, I mean, for most super funds really, you have you have a diverse uh, universe of members and, and clients and financial advisors that are using your product and you need to, you need to deliver to them what it is that you've promised to them. So if you're out there giving them a 70-30 option, you really need to deliver on that 70-30 option. So we think of that as sort of a guiding principle and then we then we will take active risk around it. I mean, it's probably worth pointing out the currency positioning change that we've made was a strategic one. So that's kind of a bigger decision, I guess, in terms of our governance structure. Um, in terms of dynamic asset allocation, we were moving our asset allocation around um, fairly systematically throughout the crisis. So as markets were falling, we were definitely increasing equity allocations. Um, without, I mean, my, my feeling would have been without that fairly structured systematic process, it would have been very hard to move as quickly as markets were moving through March and April. So, um, yeah, we did manage to do that. Um, it was, I'd say it was relatively successful versus, um, our objectives We've, I think still we're probably mildly, mildly down since the start of the crisis in terms of, I mean, it's quite painful to be buying all the way down. Um, but at the same time, the markets haven't recovered across the board to where they were before. So there's still there's still an opportunity as we see it in terms of our positioning right now. Um, but if you looked at our if you looked at our equity positioning, you would have seen it go up and now it's come back down again. Yeah. So we've seen a lot of discussions recently around the role of bonds at the current low yields. And some investors have tried to solve that puzzle by um, finding different assets to diversify away from equity risk. Um, We've done a little bit in the past around this idea of crisis risk offset or risk mitigation models that they use in the US. What are your thoughts around around that? Is, are, are those useful? Are you using elements of that or do you stick with bonds as they are? So I think if you look, I mean, if you're looking at the recent crisis and look, every crisis is different. So um, you shouldn't base you shouldn't base your defensive assets around the most recent crisis. But there was really only three things that we observed that served a meaningful purpose from a defensive asset perspective. One is having less equities. Uh, one would have been having more bonds and one was having foreign currency. And so those are sort of the three things that really seem to provide some sort of cushion to a portfolio and anything else seemed to be some variation on those three themes. Um, and so if you talk about crisis offset, generally speaking, that's just some sort of convex short equity position. Um, can you get that? at a cost effective in a cost effective way potentially um it's not something that we've explored in great detail um you kind of got a hint earlier as to where we thought where we think the best value is across those three which is in foreign currency at the moment we i mean the observation was where we'd been where we were diversified in our defensive assets was generally speaking where we were i'd say mildly disappointed in how our asset allocation held up so in places where we didn't have bonds and we had um, allocations to 
other defensive assets or a combination of assets that we thought was a combination of equities and bonds. So sort of those mid-risk assets, um, our experience was that that was a that was probably a source of underperformance in relative terms uh, versus just owning bonds. Um, yeah. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't mean they're bad investment decisions, but in that in that sort of that real crisis scenario, that was how they behaved. And looking forward, we would we would look at them and think, well, now we have a quite well positioned portfolio because given where bond yields are and given where pricing is in those assets, uh, we're very happy to hold them. But I don't know that we're going to. I don't, know, I don't know you're going to see us move substantially more away from bonds into more defensive alternatives from where we are right now. We've probably probably gone about as far as we can with that already. Yeah. Now we're in the midst of a, a pandemic, um, but you could arguably say that the markets have been uh, changing ever since uh, the, the global financial crisis and, and the, the quantitative easing programs really started to kick up. What is your view on, on how that has affected um, the equity piece, because we hear a lot of stories around value is dead. Uh, it might come back. It came back for a little bit. What are your views around that? Mm, um, look, I think one um, one area that we're spending a lot of energy right, uh, sort of right this minute and presently, is looking at looking at what's happened over the past six to twelve months in particular, and trying to separate out how much of this is how much of this is just a thematic trend that was already happening. That's accelerated, um, and how much of this is, see, so yeah, how much is an acceleration of a trend that was going to happen anyway? How much of this is really a mispricing? Um, so it's uh, what's structural and what's cyclical and what we're seeing in markets at the moment, and that's really hard to, really hard to sort out. In particular, if you look at the, the tech sector, for example, so if you talk about growth value, a lot of that really is driven by um, the technology sector and the market really favouring growth potential right now and how much of that is linked to low interest rates how much of that is linked to a structural trend of these are the companies that are going to be producing the earnings growth going forward and the earnings in the future and to some extent you need to take a view on that as much as anything else um now if i think about the the sort of question you're asking here though value versus growth there's a range of factors you can take into this there is um people talk to you about the changing dynamics of what value is, the sector rotation between those two parts of um, the equity markets. The, I guess the fundamental thing that I will come back to on this is um, whether or not you believe that there is an actual risk premium in value. Um, and that's something that is presented, but I don't know that there's necessarily any, any way to get firm evidence one way or the other on that. I would say that I have a healthy scepticism as to whether there is a risk premium in value. Uh, and if there isn't a risk premium in value, then uh, something that has been observed and demonstrated for 40 to 50 years in markets as working um, will tend to attract. If it's, a, if, it's just a, if it's just a market inefficiency effectively rather than a risk premium, then it will tend to attract capital. And by attracting capital, it will tend to uh, price itself out of existence. So that doesn't mean growth should beat value. But over the long term, is there a reason to believe that value should outperform growth over the long term going forward? You'd have to you have to believe there's a risk premium there. I think, yeah. um, given how much money there is, and given how much liquidity there is in markets, and how many smart people there are who can pick up a farmer and French research paper and read it um, and apply it. Yeah. So, are you leaning more towards structural or temporarily dislocation? Uh, the Depends. Uh, look, I think I think there's a structural trend, but I think there's 
there's definitely a cyclical dislocation in some sectors of the market. I mean, this, I mean, there's look. So I think um, I think the technology sector in particular, um, the technology sector in particular, has probably gotten a little over its skis in terms of its um, size and scope in the global economy. And so its size and scope within the capital markets relative to its size and scope within the global economy is is the is my view at the moment now we're not expressing that necessarily through a we're not expressing that in our portfolio through a sector view against technology but it certainly is permeating our permeating our positioning in country allocations uh, yep. so we're underweight us equities for example um, and that's reflective really of technology being overvalued versus every other sector yeah what do you think is the main change there with the technology sector because obviously there is the the direct implications of these companies being large almost monopolistic type of companies but it also has second degree effects where we talked a little bit uh, in the past about uh, the concept of having a moat around the company and the importance of brand in that and you can see for instance with amazon that the importance of brands is starting to deteriorate because these companies have just such a power to push their own sort of home products and push one product over another just through the way they structure their algorithms. And so it's starting to nibble a little bit about uh, on, on these type of traditional concepts. What, what do you think is the key uh, driver in, in technology in what might be structural changes? I mean, so for me, the key driver in terms of structural change will be consumer behaviour. And so right now, the biggest change in consumer behaviour is we're all sitting in front of a computer screen much more than we used to, and we're engaging with that now. The extent to which that's cyclical or structural, I think there's there's a structural element to it, but I don't think this is a... I mean, it's certainly not for me. This is not a um, stable amount of time I can spend sitting in front of a screen for the rest of my life. Uh, so I think there'll be some reversion around that. And that will that will have impacts. But then, I mean, if you look, a company like Amazon, for example, is quite interesting because as much as it is around the things they sell, I mean, Amazon Web Services is perhaps, if in terms of like the growth engine for Amazon, that's one of the greatest um, uh, greatest sort of potential profit generating parts of that business going forward. Um, and it's it's really hard when you have a company like that with with its sort of fingers in so many pies for want of a better expression um how do you work out where those moats are and which moats are they breaking down because they have their own moat in that space really right and so yeah i don't know i mean to be honest with you like there's just so there's so much complexity around that question i think the the need for techno technology solutions right now is driving the structural that is driving the trend um once that need starts to dissipate uh, I think that's when you're going to start seeing the difference between the winners and the losers. And the other thing is, I think at some point, at some point, there is going to be. I mean, it's to me, it seems impossible, implausible, not impossible, but implausible that at some point you won't see some sort of regulatory impact on those large companies. Yeah, yeah. And if we look at technology applied to investments, uh, there has been a lot of uh, interest in in machine learning and artificial intelligence, mainly because of the faster amount of data that is available. Um, recently, we, we looked a little bit into cluster analysis, which is not a new technique in itself, but I think because of the availability of, of data that you can put into these models, you actually start to see some interesting results. What, what are your views on that? Is that 
um, actually helpful in terms of deciding on your asset allocation or is it just more fun to play with? In terms of asset allocation, I'd say probably the latter. In terms of stock selection, perhaps. So, I mean, if you really, re like, like sort of higher Twitch. I mean, so we're, we're a medium to long-term investor. Um, and so if I think about where machine learning and um, AI could be helpful, it's actually less around the maths of the investing and it's more around the maths of trying to work out what is that? What what is sentiment? So, what are the what are the emotional elements of people that are driving markets? Um, and the stronger and stronger computers get, the closer they can get to understanding the madness of human emotion that goes through um, all the various brains around the world that comes into driving sentiment. So, I certainly certainly it's interesting and helpful in that space. And if you want to do wanting to make short term decisions, I think. Uh, you'll be able to make better and better short-term decisions using this technology, bearing in mind that the technology is available to everyone. And the more people that use technology, the more important the technology is in driving the decisions because then um, those, um, I mean, everything's weight of money, right? So if you have a lot of people using AI and machine learning, understanding what they're doing, they um, will give you some insight into which way sentiment is going to go because those models will start to drive the market. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I mean, you see, yeah, you saw that with the high frequency. Right? Like once high frequency came into the market, all of a sudden they started becoming, the, they started they started driving short-term volatility yeah. rather than trading off it. Yeah. So it might change the way the market behaves as well. Potentially. Yeah. So we've spoken a little bit in the past about SunSuper's partnership model. And I thought one of the interesting things that we discussed at the time is that one of the benefits that you perhaps were not expecting was that these type of interactions where you have your annual um, sort of get together with the board and the investment committee and, and, and these partners, that the discussions change in nature and that it becomes more of a um, joint decision almost rather than where you had to sell your views to, to the investment committee or the board. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, um, how that is panning out and, and, and what you have been doing in the partnership model? Uh, so I think just just recently we had, um, so we just recently had our um, strategic partners forum and uh, this year obviously was a little bit different to any other year. Um, I think one of the, Certainly one of my observations would be one of the best parts of an event like that is getting everyone in a room together and it's really quite challenging to replicate that experience remotely. Um, so we put, we put quite a lot of energy and time into, I guess, curating the best event that we could um, under the circumstances. And, I mean, you'd be, you'd be familiar with this. It's not easy to host a conference right now. Um, and so we did, we did our best. I think it was quite valuable. And I think, I think in the end, ironically, it's never been more important to have an event like that. Um, I mean, if you look at the agenda that we ran through on the day, I mean, every single topic we covered this time was probably bigger than any topic we covered before um, over the past four years of this. I mean, there's an awful lot going on um, and there's some really big questions to ask. So on the one hand, it's a really challenging environment, but on the other hand, those relationships, I think sort of give us the impetus and the drive to put together an event like that in this environment. And get everyone sort of get everyone around if nothing else everyone around their computer screens together to tackle some of these big questions because it is i mean it, it would have been quite easy for us to just say look this is too hard this year uh, but the results i think were really really valuable and there were some really good insights that came out of that um, we're going through our 
sort of strategy review process at the moment. And then I think there were some really good insights that came out of that that will inform how we structure the review and how our asset allocation, strategic asset allocation is perhaps repositioned over the coming six to 12 months to really deal with the environment in front of us. So what were some of the key takeaways for you from this forum? Um, so, I mean, we, we've touched on a couple of them already. One of them is, um, so one of the one of the key takeaways is around the alternative asset space, which is really we're just going to take a wait and see approach. So we explored a lot of uh, a lot of themes there. I mean, it's a fairly feeble response to tell you that we're going to wait and see, but I think we we explored it in a lot of detail and decided look, we don't want to we don't want to sell anything, and we don't really want to um, don't really want to be chasing too many things at the moment either. Things that are selling are. Um, are fairly heavily bid at the moment and things that aren't selling uh, you probably don't want to be making a market there by trying to sell into those markets so that that um, that's a that that will um, inform what we do I think the biggest area for us is around defensive assets which we touched on earlier and just giving some thought to uh, how we're how we're structuring those decisions with respect to what is a defensive asset um, and then what role is it playing in the portfolio um, so I don't want to I don't want to give too much away about the direction we're going ahead, but I think that's going to be the that's kind of the big insight that's come out of I think our experience returns wise and also um, thinking about the future. What is a defensive asset? What's its role in the portfolio, and how are we going to how are we going to best best use that allocation? Because I mean you've you've already raised it, but if cash rates are zero and yield curves are flat. What exactly is the role of a bond in your portfolio in that scenario? Yeah. Is inflation something we really need to worry about or not? If so, how do we want to position the portfolio for that as well? Yeah. And our last uh, topic I wanted to couple with you is uh, something that perhaps every super fund or pension fund in Australia is, is, is working on at the moment, and that's sort of retirement uh, strategies. Um, we need to come up with um, some form of default strategy or framework for, for retirement products. And I was interested to see that you in the past have worked at, at, at Milliman, where I think you were involved in the design of, of uh, annuity products. Now, annuities is one of those ingredients that potentially could help with retirement outcomes. What is your uh, current ideas around retirement products in, from an investment perspective? Um, so I am um, um, I'm perhaps strongly opinionated in the area, given my backgrounds. Uh, but um, I, it's not my it's not an area that I focus on within Sun Super. So we do have a product team. So I'll be careful not to careful to catch anything I say here as opinion. We like strong opinions, so. <laughs> Yeah, so my thoughts my thoughts around the area are that I, I'm not sure that anyone's gotten close to delivering anything better than an allocated pension. To this point, um, part of that I think is one of the one of the great benefits of superannuation is the flexibility that it provides to members. Um, and so, where where I've where I've not yet seen anyone do much better is essentially. I mean, so we we have a strong we have a strong sort of constructive view around advice and the value of advice and financial advice. And so. I think an allocated pension coupled with a good advice relationship is about the best outcome I can see. Um, so the classic advisor um, sort of strategy, and I mean, I'm greatly simplifying things here, but 
it, this works. The classic sort of advisor strategy is something like a bucketing strategy where your our member will go into their advisor and they'll set up for them something like, here's a cash portfolio, here's a risk-taking portfolio, and I will I will manage your allocations to those two things and see you through retirement. Now, if you look under the hood of what that is, that is a if you tried to replicate that as a single product, it is a fairly fairly complex of a kind dynamic asset allocation approach which sees people take more risk when markets fall. Now, if you tried to explain to someone and show, tell them that's what you were doing, um, they would never go for it. But <laughs> if you set it up with a trusted advisor relationship that says, look, here's, here's your cash. This is for you to use in the short term. Here's your risk assets. These are for your long-term growth to get you through your retirement. And then we use the cash when we need to. Um, that's a really compelling argument and it works really well. So in terms of like design, I'm not sure you can do an awful lot better than, um, than that. And I, I'm just, even, I mean, like I think, I think we'll get into robo advice type solutions at some point in the industry, but I'm, it's really hard to go past that trusted face-to-face relationship where there's someone you trust that tells you, I know what I'm talking about and this is how you need to do it. And you go in there and they can reassure you when you need it. It's yeah, I, I, I have not yet seen anything that can top that. Yeah. And, and say, and say, and sales are the biggest um, indicator here, right? Like if, if variable annuities or any of these, I'm not going to say complex, they're not that complex, but any of these sort of structured solutions um, were, adequately understood and liked by the market they'd be selling uh, because there's an awful lot of demand out there yeah for sure yeah i always wondered whether um, the whole idea of designing a default retirement product basically simply came out of the idea of well we put in place a default for um, accumulation so the my super product which makes sense because it's a mandatory system so to put some minimum requirements around it makes sense but then to apply that to the pension phase isn't as straightforward as it sounds because the circumstances are just so different. And maybe that simple idea of, well, if we have one for accumulation, we should one have one for pension perhaps doesn't really work. Yeah, no, that's a very good point, right? You can legislate a retirement age, but you can't legislate a life expectancy. No, <laughs> or a life path, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for this. It's always good to speak to you. And uh, yeah, stay safe. No worries. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. 